You are listening to CFUV 101.9 FM, the voice of Victoria. We're also streaming online at CFUV.ca. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud, and iTunes. This is You in the Ring. And welcome to another episode of You in the Ring, your weekly roundup of campus news and events. I'm your host, Hugo Wong. A little later on the show, I'll be speaking to Boma Brown from the Vancouver Island Public Interest Research Group, located upstairs in the Student Union Building, about a recently released research project on newcomer food and health justice in Victoria. Our correspondent Miyoko is back with a new segment on the edible landscape, And we have a new contributor, Sean O'Leary, who spoke with his brother about taking geography into the wider world. But first, do you use party drugs? You've seen the posters up on campus asking recreational drug users to participate in a study. They pop up on campus at the beginning of the semester and offer contact information for interested participants. But what is the study all about? And uh, to give us some insight into the project, Melanie Callis, a field coordinator with the Center for Addictions Research in British Columbia, joins me now. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, So, for those who might be unfamiliar, what exactly is the study? Um, Well, the full name of the study is the Canadian Recreational Drug Use Survey. And we interview people 19 and older who use substances in social settings, like nightclubs, parties, and festivals. And uh, the survey collects data on a variety of drugs, such as ecstasy, cocaine, acid, mushrooms. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we interview about 50 people twice a year. And are those the same people or are those different people entirely? If you participate, you are allowed to do this survey again in the next wave of data collection. So sometimes we do get people doing the survey multiple times, um, per, sorry, once per wave. Um, but often it is people who have never done this survey before. Mm-hmm. Um, and what kind of uh, participants do you end up getting? I understand, well, they're above the age of, of 19, but is there a particular like demographic usually that participates? Yes, we recruit most of our people uh, at UVic and Camosun. So as a result, most participants are post-secondary students. And most of them, I'd say, are under the age of 25 as well. So mm-hmm. sort of 19 to 25 is the most common age. Mm-hmm. Um, and what are some of the intended outcomes of the study, if there are any? Well, Yes. Uh, Well, we do collect lots of data on patterns of substance use, substance-related harms and problems, as well as price and availability of drugs. And we use this data for a few purposes. Uh, For example, we use it to write reports and publications. Uh, This data can also be used by policymakers to identify and address issues 
in communities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I've noticed that the posters have been up for several years. Have there been any differences in uh, sort of the amount of time that this study has been running? We've been doing this study since 2008, and since then it's been pretty consistent in the types of questions we ask and the data we collect. And uh, we plan to continue it for, uh, for as long as I know. Mm-hmm. Um, let's and uh, is there a risk for people who want to participate since they're talking about, you know, illicit substance use? Um, well, our survey is confidential and anonymous, so in that sense, we do uh, make sure that all the information we collect is not shared with anybody. And some of the questions uh, can bring up sort of negative emotions since they are about a possibly sensitive topic of drug use. So as a precaution for that, we give all participants contact information for sort of alcohol and drug helplines, the crisis center, sort of support that might help them if they find talking about some of these topics um, brings up some negative emotional responses. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, recently... Uh Victoria, the Lower Mainland, has been um, experiencing a bit of a crisis around fentanyl um, and, you know, different kinds of impurities or other substances in party drugs. Has that uh, come into the study at all? Is that something that you found? We do ask questions about fentanyl use, either uh, known or suspected fentanyl use. So our survey does have the potential to capture some of that information. Um, Based on the results so far, uh, we haven't had a lot of people report that they know or think that they have consumed fentanyl. So the information is self-report though, so it's based on what people think. So if somebody took a drug that was laced with fentanyl, we wouldn't actually know if that was the case unless they went to the hospital and got tested for it. But based on the self-report data, people have intended to know or think that they have consumed drugs laced with fentanyl. But we do plan to continue asking these questions in the future surveys. So the survey does have the potential to capture this. Mm-hmm. And for anyone who wants to participate in the survey, could you walk them through sort of the process from beginning to end? Yes. So uh, as you mentioned, we hang up posters all around campus, and it has our contact information on there. So if somebody is interested in participating, they can text, call, or email the contact information. And then... We will ask a few uh, questions to check for eligibility, such as how old are you, and a few other questions. And then if the participant is eligible, uh, 
our research assistant will contact them and arrange a time to meet, usually at UVic. And it's quite flexible, so we can meet the participant when they're available. And then the survey takes about one hour. And then we compensate the participant for their time by offering $10 cash and a $10 gift card to Shoppers Drug Mart. Hmm. Um, And you said that this study has been running since 2008. Uh, How long have you been involved uh, with CARBC? I have been involved for about three years as the field coordinator. And also I am a master's student at CAR BC, so I've also been a student there for about three years as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, what's your uh, what's your area of research? I research uh, quite a specific topic. <laughs> I study the use of the drug ecstasy or MDMA, and I look at strategies that people use to determine its purity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and is that a question that gets uh, covered in in the study at all? Yes, a little bit. I'm using some of the data that was collected in the club drug study in my research project. So some of the questions in previous years asked about how participants reduce harms potential harms associated with using ecstasy, such as do they discuss purity with friends? Do they use an ecstasy testing kit? So I used some of that data in my thesis. And I also conducted interviews myself, uh, separate from the study. Mm -hmm. Um, And did you find that those users uh, use testing kits or or ask their friends at all about purity? Uh, The CARB-C data that I analyzed, which was from a few years ago, revealed that the most popular strategy was discussing ecstasy with friends. And using testing kits was not very popular. It was sort of the bottom of the list. And in the club drug study, we don't ask many in-depth questions about why it's more about do you use this strategy yes or no so then in my own research for my master's thesis that's where I sat down with some participants and asked why do you use or not use testing kits and sort of to identify some reasons and barriers to those strategies. Mm -hmm. Uh, And was there anything surprising that you found or something that you think more people should know about? Um, In my own research, the most surprising thing for me uh, was that quite a few of the participants that I interviewed were not concerned about ecstasy purity, as well as they didn't know about strategies they could use to protect themselves, such as using ecstasy testing kits. So, I mean, that was surprising to me just because I'm so immersed in this mm-hmm. field and I know about possible harms related to impure ecstasy and the s- strategies such as ecstasy testing kits. So I just went in with the assumption that ecstasy users uh, knew about this as well, but that's not always the case. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and if anyone wants to um, participate in the study themselves, um, who do they contact and how they get in touch? Uh, the best way is to look at the information uh, listed on the poster, and they can call or text at any time, as well as email. I can also uh, share that information here. <laughs> so the telephone number is 250-208-5308, and our email is vicstudy at uvic.ca. That's great. Um, we'll have to leave it there. Melanie, thank you so much for joining us today. Okay, thank you very much. Melanie Callas is a field coordinator uh, with the Center for Addictions Research in British Columbia, who joined me on the phone. Vancouver Island Public Interest Research Group occupies an office in the Student Union Building at UVic and carries out research projects every year. Uh, This summer, Viper carried out a research project on newcomer food and health justice in Victoria. Joining me to talk about the findings of that study is Boma Brown, Viper's Director of Internal Affairs. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, And so... Let's start with uh, let's start with this. What does food and health justice mean for the purposes of your study? Uh, sure. Uh, so I th- I think for this study, Viper was looking at um, how newcomers and we define newcomers as people who have only lived in Canada for a few years. So we're looking at immigrants and refugees and looking at how um, their food habits, their food. Um, their food habits essentially uh, change because they're moving to a new country. Uh, So we find that a lot of times uh, moving to a new country, obviously we know it can be really stressful, but something that we don't really think about a lot is the fact that people's food habits change when you're in a country where the food is brand new, it's a different price. Uh, Many times immigrants and refugees have other challenges, uh, specifically money. Uh, So even buying basic food uh, sometimes can be... Uh, a challenge. So we're looking at how we can make food justice this idea that a person has accessibility to food uh, that's affordable, appropriate. Um, so we're looking at, you know, what kind of challenges these people face in Victoria when they move here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and how did you conduct the study? Uh, we conducted the study in a few ways. Uh, we prim- primarily used surveys. So we surveyed almost 300 people. Uh, on campus and off campus. Uh, We also did something which is interesting. We compared uh, the the outcome of like the studies from immigrants, the surveys from immigrants and refugees to um, non-immigrants and refugees to see if there were going to be dif- uh, differences in our results between the two groups. We used UVic as one of our sites of the study because you know UVic is home to a number of international students. Um, I think almost like three over three thousand international students are on campus every year. So we also uh, talked to them as well, and then did surveys off campus as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And was there anything surprising that you found while working through the research? Uh, There was a couple of surprising things. Um, I think uh, when we compared the uh, results from uh, immigrants and refugees to non-immigrants and refugees who were non-racialized, racialized racialized meaning that people who don't necessarily face uh, discrimination based on their perceived race, we found that food was a really important part of people's identity and culture. for the immigrants and refugees, uh, the, the numbers were staggering. It was it was huge. Um, so immigrants and refugees felt like food was an important part of their culture and identity versus people um, who are white who didn't think it was a huge part of their culture and identity. We also asked people if they faced discrimination based on um, purchasing foods that were multicultural or ethnic, and uh, many immigrants and refugees had felt some sort of discrimination versus people um, who hadn't. So those are some of the results, and there's lots of it in our report. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and you met, you touched on the cultural aspect uh, a little a little earlier. Yeah. Um, do immigrants and refugees uh, find that they have the kind of access that they want to the foods that they're familiar with or the foods that are important to them? Right. That's a good question. Uh, the answer is no. <laughs> uh, so we asked people if they felt like there was challenges in accessing cultural specific foods and ingredients in Victoria. And um, a majority of people said that uh, they agreed that there are challenges. The number um, was 27.3%. So over a quarter of people um, agreed, 15% strongly agreed. So like we have almost like half of the people who either agree or strongly agree that there are challenges in accessing food. And what we noticed was, I also helped out with um, doing the surveys. It was interesting when I talked to immigrants and refugees, um, they were like, yes, of course, there's challenges. And then talking to people who are non-immigrants and refugees, they were like, wait, what? I never even thought about that before. There's challenges? And I was like, yeah, there are. Um, but that's something we don't really think about unless you're from that background and you have to like go to the, to the store and not find the foods you're looking for. It's something I experienced. I'm from Nigeria originally. And um, yeah, it's still a challenge. And I've been here for over five years. Mm-hmm. Um, and are there any kinds of uh, recommendations uh, that you make in, in the study about it? Yeah, for sure. Uh, we made a couple of recommendations. Um, something that we really thought was important was even looking at other studies that had happened um, in other parts of Canada. Uh, we recommend that food banks, local food banks, uh, think of food more um, in, in a more diverse way. So oftentimes people who are maybe newcomers will, you know, look to food banks uh, first for, you know, if they're struggling financially or need more food. Uh, many of the food banks don't have ethnically diverse food at all. Um, uh, obviously, we're thankful that even food banks, food banks exist in the first place. But I think um, we encourage, you know, local food banks to think of, you know, Stocking the shelves a little bit differently, uh, thinking of their who exactly their demographic is, and maybe uh, like trying to accommodate all those people. Because uh, many people said, you know what, we we can't even go to food banks because when we go there, we get the food, we can't even eat it because it's just so unfamiliar to us. Uh, something else that we uh, encourage was uh, the city of Victoria has a local business hub, and something that um, we also do in our research in the research report was we talk to local business owners because people um, who don't really buy these foods don't know that like oftentimes you can go to Walmart or Fairway to buy these foods, you have to go to the local store downtown or the local store in your neighborhood to get it. And um, we talked to local business owners who supply ethnic foods in Victoria, and they talked about the challenges that they face. So something we, we recommend in our report is for the city of Victoria to provide some sort of incentives for local business owners, small business owners, to provide more diverse foods in their stores, because uh, this is something that we've noticed as a challenge. We also think it's important for more funding to go towards uh, community groups that are doing work around food, uh, because something we, we noticed in our report was people just enjoyed coming together, you know, to cook food, to create food. And these opportunities are important, but they're not happening enough in our community. So if there's a way for nonprofits, community organizations to um, provide more funding to groups and individuals who want to uh, do work around food, that may be cooking food once a month or maybe even growing food. Uh, we think this kind of work is important and should be encouraged in our community. Mm-hmm. Um, and are there are there policymakers or are there people that you've submitted the study to or that you've talked to about this issue? Uh, it's something that we're still in the process of. We only released the report um, last uh, last week, but um, we are looking towards just talking to the city of Victoria. I know there's lots of work going on around food and growing healthy food. Uh, we're thinking of ways that we can inc- incorporate that this work into what they're doing. Uh, even in the uh, even in the university, it's something that um, we're looking towards talking to the UVSS, the University of Victoria Student Society, uh, about what the possibilities are for like more food options on campus and also the 
University of Victoria campus at large. So we're uh, having talks with um, catering to see if um, many students, one of the questions we asked was, would more um, cultural or like ethnic food options on campus make our campus more diverse and more inclusive and welcoming? And people overwhelmingly said yes. Um, So that's something we think um, should be happening more on campus. And we hope that uh, the university is receptive to our research and can have these conversations on a a larger scale on campus. Backing up just a little bit, yeah. could you describe Viperg for those who might not be familiar with your sure. work? Sure. Uh, so Van- uh, Viperg is the Vancouver Island Public Interest Research Group, and we've been on campus uh, for over 30 years, and we are a nonprofit organization. And we do community-based research, which means that um, we're not doing research in, with an academic um, kind of framework where you go into a person's community and research on them. We research with community. Uh, so our research always has an action component. So uh, community-based research is working with people. Um, we, we, always, we only do research when uh, we feel like there's a community need attached to it. So this report uh, we did because you know we had a lot of events and a conference, and people, the issue of food kept coming up. And we felt like it's something that um, is missing in the research landscape in the city and we felt like we should take it on so that's sort of what we do we also other than our research uh, we have a library in our in the student union building and that library has um, alternative resources reports journals from the past 30 years that students find really helpful for research papers and things like that uh, we also have our office space that's a work play relax station um, people hang out there students hang out there it's open to the community um, yeah mm-hmm. we also have an annual conference that happens in March every year mm-hmm. and uh what are you working on next? Uh, we're kind of taking a break and just like, <laughs> yeah, because this is an intensive research project. I can imagine. Uh, so it, we've, it's been a, it's been out for a week, uh, and this is like sort of the action phase where we're you know doing the media media thing, um, thinking of like how to incorporate it in like into policy, um, getting the word out there. We have a couple of events that we're doing over the next couple of weeks. Uh, so we're sort of in the like dissemination phase of our research. And um, I don't know what we're going to be working on next, but it's probably going to be really interesting. <laughs> uh, if people want to read the report, they want to learn more about Viperg, where mm-hmm. do they go? It's on our website. And that website is www.viperg.ca. That's V-I-P-I-R-G.ca. That's great. Uh, Boma, thanks so much for joining us this Thank morning. Thank you for having me. We have a new contributor to You in the Ring this week. Sean O'Leary has been reporting on sports for CFUV, and today he brings us an interview with his brother, Calm O'Leary, about taking geography off campus into the real world. Let's listen in. Today I'm with my younger brother, Calm O'Leary. Calm is finishing his degree in geography at the University of Victoria. He graduated from Lavic Park Senior School in 2009. For the past five summers, Cullum has worked at Rivers Inlet Sportsman Club Fly and Fishing Resort. In this time, Cullum has helped with the management and operation of the lodge, from washing boats to guiding charters with guests. The lodge itself is located in the central coast, three hours north of Port Hardy, by boat. Cullum is 25 years old and was born and raised here in his hometown of Victoria. Calm has shown exceptional leadership skills in his role at the Lodge. He was fit for this position at Rivers Inlet because of his studies in geography. Calm returned to Victoria at the beginning of this September. Joining with me now is Colm O'Leary. Hello, Colm. How's your day gone? It's going great, thank you. Thanks for doing the show. Absolutely. Thank you for having me in today. No problem. 
First off, uh, how did you get in involved with the Lodge? Well, I met a friend, uh, actually through school at the time, who had mentioned that he worked at a fly and fishing resort. Um, and at the time, I didn't have any experience with anything like that, so I wanted to hear more about it. Great, yeah. Um, obviously, you are well-versed to have this role because of your studies in geography. Um, how did that help you make um, become successful at the Lodge? Well, there are a lot of things that come into play when you're out there on the water. Um, spatial awareness is a big one. You have to be aware of your surroundings in a sense that there are other boaters moving around. Um, so you have to adjust your position to that. Uh, there's also tides, currents, and landforms. So when I see a lot of the landforms on the coastline, it's very rugged and untouched. And that really brings into the physical geography that I learned. Mm -hmm. um, geomorphology and kind of the atmospheric sciences and the oceans. And all of that is, is happening around you when you're when you're on the ocean so yeah great that sounds very exciting um again um you're successful because of your knowledge um but what roles did you have at the lodge well um i started working on the docks so i was a dock hand meaning we helped supply the boats with gas and tackle and uh, tackle means like fishing gear a little bit of lingo there, <laughs> <laughs> and um, and washing the boats as well. Mm -hmm. So I started there, and then I moved my way up to uh, to fishing, being a fishing guide. Mm -hmm. So customer service is a big part of that. Um, there's a lot of learning there, and uh, a lot of adventuring on the water. Again, um, that's about your experience, but mm -hmm. yeah, tourism is obviously the main purpose of the lodge mm -hmm. um talk about your tourists and what th they can come to expect uh, in their time at the sportsman club in one sense we need to enforce to our guests that they have to expect the unexpected on the water <laughs> um things are changing all around you things are happening quickly uh, fishing is is uh, is a game of chance, but also a game of strategy and calculation. And when you put those things together, sometimes, maybe all, not all the time, but sometimes you don't know what to expect. So, uh, in terms of the fishing, you need to be ready for anything. But in terms of the accommodation, it's a full service. Um, you come in, uh, flying in on the uh, caravan planes. We dock you, um, take your luggage for you from the end of the dock, escort you up, and within minutes you're enjoying your favorite cold beverage or getting ready for lunchtime and uh, receiving the orientation to get you out there on the water within a few hours of landing at the at the fishing resort. So um, it's a lot to take in, but uh, you can expect a, a good time for sure. Yeah, great. And um, how much of that is a team effort? Uh, obviously, you get, like you said earlier, you get a lot of tourists. Um, but how? How? Talk about your teammates up, up on the lodge. Um, roughly, how big of a crew do you work uh, with during the season? Roughly fifteen. It's a small crew. Um, we've got fifteen people taking care of you know thirty or forty at one time. So we all have to know our roles and. Uh, 
we all have to work together and synergy is a big part of that helping one another out and you get to know each other i mean we essentially live together for two months right in the accommodations so we all get to know each other well and just like anywhere people have their days and sometimes you have a bad day and we, we do our best to to keep each other's heads up because we're on this little floating island together and uh you know it's it's important to to keep your head up and and look out for each other um let's go into more detail about that um as somebody involved in the management of the lodge now which you currently are right yeah okay um what are some of the challenges the team faces with while uh, going through the day Oh, that's a big question, but um, I would say problem solving is the two words that come to my mind, Um, whether that be trying to accommodate a guest with a special request, um, maybe they'd like their own reel hooked up, or maybe um, they have a certain condition that requires them to have a more comfy ride with less bumps, so we need to switch them into a bigger boat, or maybe they're looking for a certain catch. Um, or or maybe they value a certain part of the experience that the next guest doesn't. So right. it's up to us to read that and uh, and and provide the best experience that we can. Um, we want to make them feel, we want to make our guests feel like they're at home, and that's our that's our goal and and one of our main challenges, but also one of our strong suits. So yeah, and then also there's the miscellaneous, you know. Um, it's never uh, realistic to think that engine problems can't happen or electrical issues with your boat or your your fishing gear. So we're always uh, dealing with challenges on that end too with the, the physical maintenance of the lodge and all the the water systems and the, the plumbing and all that. So, mm. so there's a lot going on behind the scenes for sure. Great. Um, yeah, talk about that, um, but what kind of a uh, little bit, different maybe but also i think it connects to what we were talking mm-hmm. about is um what kind of physical mental labor you have to do throughout the season and talk about that right so yeah, yeah i always have trouble explaining to people what i'm actually doing while i'm up there for yeah. so many hours a day um yeah it's a physical and a mental a, a mental labor there's a, there's a there's a balance there um when in terms of fishing it's slate of hand there's is definitely some athleticism involved there right down to balancing yourself and steadying yourself on a boat while you're rocking around in a three foot chop um, and, and making sure that you're safe and your guests are safe on their feet. Also the bite of a fish is quick. It's a slate of hand. So you have to be quick and assertive with your, your movements and your dexterity that's involved. Um, and then, yeah, processing of fish. I mean, in four days, sometimes we we process up up to two thousand pounds of fish. Wow, so yeah. that's all coming off the boat onto the dock, cut, you know, cleaned, prepared, vacuum packed, stored, um, and then eventually packed into your box with your name on it. And uh, there's a lot of physical uh, work involved with that, uh, for sure. Yeah. Talking about your studies in geography. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's been a great experience here at UVic uh, thus far. I'm I'm nearing the end of my degree now. I have a few more courses to finish. And uh, it's been great to uh, have the privilege of being around some of these professors in, in the Department of Geography at UVic. Is, 
Uh, it seems like such a strong, a strong environment where there's a lot of new research going on and a, a lot of knowledge being put forth to uh, studies that are helping us understand what's going on with a lot of things like coastal sciences and uh, even down to farming and agriculture and uh, urban development as well. It's, it's really exposed um, a layer a layer, there lots of layers of knowledge that I wouldn't have otherwise known of. So it's it's nice to be able to step back and see that. Let's um talk about more about the lodge and what you see out on the water. Talk, talk about what's like, what as far as the wow factor uh, do you see in your time out on the water? For me, from the moment we we round the corner of our our bay where the lodge is rooted, and you know I see the. Calvert Island in the distance and uh, the Fitzhugh Sound running down. Just the the topography and the the lay of the land, if you will, is is spectacular and breathtaking as is. And then right. on top of that, there's all this stimulation from whales and you know sea otters and eagles, and it's just so abundant with life. Hmm. And really, when it really hits home, is uh, that not very many people get to see that. Right. And you wonder, you know, it's so untouched. It just uh, it makes you very grateful for what you see mm-hmm. on the water, for sure. That sounds amazing, and I only wish that more people could have that experience. Okay, you going to talk about an experience in particular that you had? Actually, this past season, um, I've been there five seasons now. It's a, about a two-month endeavor, but each time I've gone up, I've heard stories about grizzly bears, and I've never actually seen them. And this year, we were fishing at a, a local spot near our lodge, about 10 minutes away, and there were these two grizzly cubs just scaling the rocks in between the water line and the tree line mm-hmm. where the forest starts. Yeah. And these two cubs were just working their way along. Uh-huh. I figured towards a creek or something. I didn't see mom, but uh, I figured she wasn't far off. Yes. And we all... Uh-huh took up our fishing gear and stopped and just took a moment it was nice. yeah very incredible awesome yeah uh, this sounds like a wonderful wonderful experience um how do you see your experiences on the water contributing to your life in the future oh. um respect for my surroundings um is a big one uh, being able to adapt to what's happening to your physical surroundings i think is something that being on the water and being up in in isolation has taught me um also confidence you know you learn to believe in what you're doing and you learn to believe that when you make a choice it's the right choice right on the water with guests in the water you know Mm. with you you're responsible for them Mm. so that's a big responsibility is a is a feeling that i've uh, accumulated over time with it and with the fishing itself um I think not only is it employable in the future, um, but it's also a part of our culture here on the coast. Um, being able to, to go out and, and catch your own fish is, yeah. is also a way of providing for your family mm-hmm. and, and partaking in, and you know, we live on an island that's in a way part of what we, you know, what we've come to do. So I think that's, uh, that's always going to be mm-hmm. a way it'll contribute. Yeah, obviously, these are big responsibilities that you have to make sure your guests are safe, to make sure they're having a good time, so forth. Um, talk about those responsibilities. 
Yeah, when the guests leave the dock, it's um, it's always something that we're checking on, we're thinking of, is their safety. Um, from safety kits and flares and making sure they have their life jackets and their licenses and um, debriefing them on the weather for the day. There's all these factors and variables to consider, especially when they don't have experience on the water before. Um, so it's it's kind of a... It's constant is what we like to, it's like a constant. And, and that's something we take pride in, in looking after is, uh, is thinking about that and thinking about how we can avoid and, and, um, and preemptively foresee those circumstances, you know, to make sure that no one, no one ends up hurt. But yeah, it's, uh, it's been a safe, a safe and a really enjoyable operation for my time there. And, and, and the 32 years it's been running. Yeah, mm. yeah, it's a long time coming. Yeah, for sure. That's a long time, and people might not realize how important um, rivers inlet to to BC and even Canada. Um, yeah, let's talk a bit more about this. Um, what have you learned from your experiences um, at the club fly and fishing resort? Uh, so so much learning. I think I'm still learning, like we all are. Um, I think what I take from it most is uh, is a, a growth over time, um, working my way from being a dock hand to being, you know, the, the head fishing guide is has really provided me with an experience where I can see it from each component up, and uh, that way, if there is an issue or something that needs to be addressed, I have. Uh, a full picture to work with and um, I'm not you know favoring one one role or the other right. you're just trying to figure out the best solution the okay. most efficient one so yeah I think that that ability to problem solve and and be confident when you do decide to how you do decide to take action for sure yeah well thank you Calm, for joining us um, this sounds like a very exciting experience and I hope for our listeners as well have a good day Thanks for that, Sean. It's November 8th, so it's election day for our friends south of the border. We'll be back next week with a UVic expert on the election aftermath. Coming up at 11 this morning is In Rainbows with Katie Sage. I'm going to leave you with a new segment by one of our valued correspondents, Miyoko. She's back with a new discovery as part of her series on uh, food on campus. She meets Adam Huggins, and they talk about the concept of edible landscape. Have yourself a wonderful Tuesday. project is talked about on on the ring newspaper you had an award or something really yes (laughs) (laughs) i didn't know i didn't know that we were featured in a newspaper i will have to send you the page then because there's there's your photo really there's your name really and there's, of course, a link to your project, which is the uh, Edible Landscape Project, right? Yeah. That you did with a, another student. Or... Yvonne, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. At first, I didn't really recognize you. I mean, I didn't expect this guy on the photo to be you. But then I clicked and I read a little bit about the project. 
and then I there on the project PDF page there's a there's a little blurb on the two of you and I saw your name and recognize it I was like I know this guy <laughs> <laughs> Canada is a small world right something I like about it too Hello everybody this is Miyoko speaking to you For his interview, Adam wanted to sit on the bench of Spring Ridge Commons, which looks like a small half-acre park in the neighborhood of Victoria, Canada. It's in fact Canada's oldest public food forest and Victoria's largest public permaculture garden. I had never seen or even imagined such a unique place before Adam introduced me to the concept. It's a garden where anyone can volunteer to grow food or not, and anyone can come harvest food or not. And of course, you can come and hang out on benches and have interviews with people if you like. I liked that sentence on the website. Spring Ridge Commons serves as a source of free food, a learning environment, a community space, and most importantly, a place of beauty, nature, and solitude. I mean, doesn't it feel good to be here? Yes, it did. And it was a great illustration to the story that Adam was about to tell. My interest in food and plants began uh, when I was a film student at Simon Fraser University. I had just come up from the States, and uh, I was on a meal plan. And the food was terrible and so expensive. And as I looked more into, you know, feeding myself and and uh, and starting to grocery shop and things like that and realizing then that I could dumpster dive too, that I could, there was so much food that was wasted, that was good food, that you could just go and grab it and almost live off of that, like which is a total perversity in a, in a system where there's still many hungry people. Um, I guess like slowly, step by step, I became radicalized and interested in food. I encountered an organization called the Purple Thistle in East Vancouver and is one of the most unique organizations that I've ever come across. And it's, it no longer exists. The tail end of the Harper years kind of killed it off. But it was a youth-run art space uh, that was uh, all collectively managed. And uh, there, was, there was filmmaking going on there, which is what originally like I learned that they had film resources and so I went down to see what people were doing um, but they did so many other things they did screen printing and they had sewing machines they had a little computer lab and a little performance stage and they would do classes and uh, they also were starting to garden in the unused kind of industrial areas around the space and so I thought that was pretty cool I came to get involved with the film and I ended up gardening a lot and I'd never gardened before I have no background in gardening my family doesn't garden Uh, I knew nothing, nothing, and I had this place to make mistakes, right? To be like, okay, let's try this. Let's learn about this. And it was okay if I messed up. And uh, I spent so much time gardening there that uh, I ended up coordinating the garden organization. So uh, I kept helping host work parties and that kind of thing, and uh, we applied for a grant to uh, to create a food forest, and we ended up getting it. It was a $12,000 grant from the Vancouver Foundation. It was a Generation Green Fund. It was for youth projects in the city. 
there are a number of things about that that community garden that got me stuck there. And one of the first was just that while we were working with our hands, it felt good. It felt so good to to work with my hands and I'm I'm well educated in an intellectual sense, but very poorly educated in terms of practical hand skills at that time. Uh, and I just was, I was eating it up, learning how to, how to sow seeds and later how to scythe and, you know, to work with hand tools. Um, and at the same time, I was having the best intellectual conversations with the people around me. We were talking about things that were happening in the community or in the city or in the country. Because um, there's all this time when you're gardening with people, you can have these great conversations and you're not just doing it around a table. You're getting stuff done and you're connecting with your environment and people will walk by and talk to you, random people. Or, you know, they'll ask for a sunflower and you can give them a sunflower. Um, and so you end, up, you end up having these cross sections of humanity that don't come other, together under other circumstances. So a lot of it was social at first. Um, but I started to realize that I just react well to plants. And I still, to this day, like, I go crazy if I'm in an environment without plants for too long. I need to go somewhere and be around plants. Um, and it's just kind of a green fever. You know, some people really light up when they see dogs or something like that. You know, it's just like a smile comes on their face and they feel good. I have the same thing with, with plants. Green therapy. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I, I hunger for it. And it got me into doing native ecosystems too and ecology and uh, restoration because uh, I started to realize it's not just gardens that I love. It's uh, it's ecosystems, right? And uh, that each, you know, each individual organism that I encounter in an ecosystem is like another note in some kind of crazy symphony that is playing and uh, I love that. I love that diversity. I love feeling that I'm an intact, working ecosystem that has elements that I don't understand. And uh, yeah, you can't, you know, you can only get that in so many places. I can't even get that in a garden. I have to go out, you know, into the wild for that. So those are the things that kind of attracted me. But like I said before, just being in a place where I could learn by doing and make mistakes. And then... <laughs> well, I could tell you my whole life story out here. Well, no, it's but I mean, right. after that, you decided to go to Uvic and and oh, learn. There's been a lot more between that. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, no, because <laughs> I'm from the state, so you know, I went back to California to be with my family, um, and to to actually go and live on a food forest farm, and I found one. And it's like one of the most amazing places I've ever been. Hundreds and hundreds of fruit trees, hundreds of varieties of fruit anything you can imagine we were growing it and dozens of varieties of each and then propagating them it was a nursery we had goats and chickens and uh turkeys and ducks and uh all overlooking this beautiful river in northern california and so i lived there for a good year learning from the folks there i've worked in several native plant nurseries since then i became very interested in native ecology also through studying herbalism i've done all sorts of different things before coming back to school yeah so now that we know a little bit more about where Adam is coming from, he's going to tell the story of the project I wanted him to tell me about in the first place, which he did with Hewan Park, both as students at UVic, the University of Victoria, Canada. So what is the story of the project? So um, I was doing a restoration class with Eric Higgs, and uh, my project team, we were 
trying to design a uh, edible wetland for the campus fountain in front of the library because it just looks so sad to me all the time. There's like sometimes birds in it, but mostly it's just empty and there's like leaves and stuff. And we thought it, you know, it looks a little bit like it could use some filtration. Maybe let's put like some wetland plants here and some cool floating, floating filtration stuff and have them be edible. And it would be a really great project. And so Eric told me that I should get in touch with Haywan because she was also interested in uh, permaculture and in incorporating food and restoration, which is kind of a new, a new avenue. And so, uh, I talked with Heywan, and uh, at, a, at a certain point, she uh, told me that there was this contest that uh, the Capital Regional District was putting on called Ready, Set, Solve, which was like a sustainability contest, right? And that was the, probably what you saw in the newspaper was uh, we decided, well, heck, we'll throw in our hat and uh, we'll do this project together and just see what happens. And so it wasn't really our idea, basically, it's in the sustainability plan that the Campus and Sustainability Department put out uh, several years back that uh, I think the provision is to investigate the feasibility of edible landscapes on the UVic campus. And they hadn't done anything on it since they had made the report. So they said, well, if a couple students want to work on this uh, for this contest, then we'll support them. So we did. And uh, we did a number of things. We mapped where food was already on campus. We mapped areas that we thought would be really good for producing food on campus. Uh, we talked to a number of different uh, people. We had, a, we had a kind of brainstorming session where we tried to get as many students out as possible to kind of show them the areas that we thought about and talk about, you know, if we were to grow food on campus, uh, how would we do it? And uh, who would it go to if we harvested it? And how would it be harvested? And to kind of get people's ideas. Um, and then we, we put all that together into a report and, uh, you know, we looked at other, uh, other campuses around the country and around the world that are doing food production on campus in unique ways. Uh, and we submitted it and we won the contest, which was kind of funny. <laughs> what is so exciting about it to you? Um... For me, like, I, I like to be in landscapes where I feel like I can interact with the landscape. Uh, where I feel like there's, there's spontaneous things happening. And where it's not chaos, totally. But where, uh, where there's more life. Um, and that's part of the appeal of having edible landscapes and uh, incorporating them with other types of landscapes. Where, you know, we frisbee on the lawn or that kind of thing, you know definitely not advocating for the destruction of all lawn environments but I think a lot more of the land that we just have rendered useless through really tasteless landscaping or <laughs> through uh, destructive destructive activities could be turned towards uh, things that uh, support pollinators or things that people can gather around and enjoy together and uh you know, having little old Asian ladies planting their herbs from where they come from so that other people can get to know them and, you know, having other people maintaining the fruit trees. And one of the things we're trying to do with Edible Campus is to try to bring the fruit from the periphery of the campus into parts of the campus, you know, not, not necessarily the center of it, but into parts of the campus where there's lots of people and where people can see and experience what it's like to have food around them, um, but also 
all those people create a protection that, oh, this place is being tended and it's being watched and the community values it. And so, and the community will take part in it and share it equitably, right? I guess, you know, in some ways it's idealistic, but a landscape like Spring Ridge Commons, where we are right now, proves that, you know, it's possible. We're not going to change the food system by growing some food on the University of Victoria campus, right? Like, the systems that create food for the vast majority of people uh, in North America are enormous and are going to take amazing, like, tremendous amounts of social energy and also ingenuity to change to be more sustainable and so a lot of this is just you know it's like anything at a university hopefully on a small scale it's working really great but it's also meant to teach people so that when they move on to take on larger issues you know they have that they have that experience they have those ideas to take with them um i think maybe more than anything that that's why i do this kind of work Thank you, Adam, for sharing the story of Edible Landscape on Campus Project. I think Gandhi said, in a gentle way, you can shake the world. So why don't we encourage all the Adam Huggins and Hewan Parks of the world to keep going, if, like me, you think that the world could probably use some shaking. Tu dis que tu veux la révolution, ouais, mais tu sais, on veut tous changer le monde. Tu me dis que c'est l'évolution, ouais, mais tu sais, on veut tous changer le monde. Mais quand tu parles de destruction J'espère que tu ne comptes pas sur moi Tu vois pas que tout va bien se passer Bien aller Aller Tu veux changer la constitution, ouais, mais tu sais, on veut tous changer ta tête. Tu me dis que c'est l'institution, ouais, mais tu sais, tu ferais mieux libérer tes pensées. Mais si tu trimbales avec des photos de Mao, tu vas pas y arriver ni être suivi de qui que ce soit. Tu vois pas que tout va bien se passer. Bien aller. 